Welcome to the April 24th edition of Virtually Speaking with Jay Aykroyd. On pretty much every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern, we discuss current events, public policy, history, science, even the occasional dollop of fiction. Tonight's guests are June Carbone and Naomi Khan. June is the inaugural holder of the Rabina Chair of Law, Science, and Technology at the University of Minnesota and a member of the Yale Cultural Cognition Project. With Naomi, she's the author of Red Families vs. Blue Families and co-author of the third and fourth editions of Family Law. Naomi Khan is the Harold C. H. Green Professor at the George Washington University of Law, also Senior Fellow of the Donaldson Adoption Institute, Board Member of the Donor Sibling Registry, and a member of the George Washington University Global Gender Program Advisory Board. It's wonderful having you both with us. Welcome, Naomi. Thanks. Great to be here. It's great to have you back, June. We had a lovely time when you were here before. We were looking forward to doing it again. I am too. Before we launch into the book itself, I was really struck as I was reading through some of the policy recommendations just how difficult the thing you're trying to do is. I mean, what you're writing about is the confluence of race and class and gender roles and religion and sex all in one big stew. And every single one of those issues is controversial. Every single one of them is packed with baggage that people bring to the discussion. And I just want to really take a moment to thank you for really trying to parse out the data and think about these things from the point of view of oh, a thoughtful intellectual rather than somebody all balled up in any of those five issues. So I just wanted to thank you for doing that. And have you ever remarked on how complicated that is to each other? <laughs> Uh, yeah, throughout probably every single time we emailed each other, which was at least five or six times a day as we were working through the book, as we tried to exact, I mean, I think you've done a great job of, of saying just how complex all of these different factors are and how difficult it is to, to separate them out. Now, I guess we could say that this whole argument, the whole idea of markets for marriage and markets for people goes back to Gary Becker, who had seminal work in the 70s about that, and you mentioned that in the book. Yes. I started my career at the intersection of family law and economics, being appalled by Gary Becker. And, um, and I was delighted to discover that David Friedman, my former colleague at Santa Clara, Milton Friedman's son, about whom uh, I agree with very little, he and I agreed completely on our analysis of Gary Becker. And that was that Becker's idea of the family that men and women are specialists. Um, you know, women specialize in the home, men specialize in the market, and uh, this decline in specialization was the ruin in the family with women going into the market. And David and I both scratched our heads and said, what? Um, this story is a story in the 19th century of specialization among men and the reorientation of the family and of women to uh, pump more capital, human capital, into men. And the story of the late 20th and 21st centuries are greater specialization among women. Gary Becker got it wrong. And it, it, but I thought as I was reading the book, I, the notes I typed was informatively wrong. I mean, it's, it's instructive to think about what he exactly how mistaken he was, because it really makes it possible to look at those five elements I discussed a moment ago and how they really interact in a way that has nothing to do with a Chicago-style approach to valuation of people's time. Does that make any sense, Naomi? Um, that, that does make sense. I mean, the whole idea of relationship markets, of marriage markets, 
gets picked up by sociologists, and we rely a great deal on um, the concept of gender ratios and marriage markets by the sociologist Marsha Gutentag and um, uh, her, her husband and, and co-author, Robert Secord, in which they, they actually, I mean, to some extent, they build on Becker, and yet in, in terms of thinking about people matching up in some kind of a market, they, they move away from his gendered markets into more of a what happens when there are too many women or too many men in a market. How does that actually skew the market the way that people match up? Now, I just realized I just committed a cardinal sin. I forgot to mention the name of the book, Marriage Markets, How Inequality is Remaking the American Family. That's just out on, from Oxford University Press, and there's a great um, summary post by June and Naomi over at Slate, if you want to check it out, and we'll put that into the uh, into the um, text stream on in, in Second Life, and also you can find it at virtuallyspeaking.us. As virtuallyspeaking.us, I'll have that link up as well. Um, and so this is kind of building on your previous book about red and blue families, um, and what you recognize there is that what was happening to women's opportunities in the bottom three quintiles was different from what was happening to their opportunities in the top two quintiles. And this was being reflected in both premarital sex and premarital childbirth, and also in decisions of women to live alone. The way that the, the slate piece was titled was Just Say No, which you took exception to that summary title, but the idea is that women could sometimes, completely confounding what Becker would say, would choose to go it alone because that's the better economic choice given the instability that the economy is imposing onto men's working, men's capabilities of working good jobs in the bottom two quintiles. Now, is that a fair summary of the beginning of the story, June? Um, yes, and, and you introduced many, many different parts. Indeed. So, <laughs> so let, let me start with this first. We knew when we wrote red families versus blue families, we tried to map family form onto the state and onto people's politics. And it turns out there's an extraordinarily strong correlation between things like teen birth, that's red, uh, fertility, uh, higher it is, that's red, abortion rates, that's blue, a later average age of marriage, that's blue, and the vote. And we wondered why. And we knew that some of what we were looking at was a wealth effect. Blue states have more money. Red states are poorer. And red states all reflect the fact that working class families who used to have it pretty good, pretty you know, they were doing okay, are falling apart. So we started with that idea. Let me stop you there for just a second, and that's where the inequality word comes into play, right? That families in the bottom quintiles were doing bottom two or three quintiles were doing worse because there was growing inequality in labor markets for especially male employees. Is that right? Yes, but I, I quickly want to add what we wrote this book to explain is both conservatives and sometimes liberals say, but it's not just the economy; it's culture. And we wrote this book to explain the links between the economy and culture. Conservatives say 
it's the culture, it's, it's that poor people are lazy and that's why they're unemployed and that's why they're poor and that's why they don't want to get married and all of these these problems are because because of sort of these personal faults. So what we wanted to do was call attention to the reversal of that and say, no, it's not that poor people are lazy. It's not personal faults of theirs. The problem is changes in the economy. And so we actually, we, we, we go back to and we, we try to revive in some ways, or at least we try to revive the beneficial parts of the the pretty discredited Moynihan report from the mid-60s on the um, on the black family. Well, Moynihan did a very valuable service in that he forced this conversation. Yes. And you write about Moynihan at some length. When you say he was wrong, you mean that his attributing this to black culture was wrong? When do you, what do you mean when you say he's wrong? I'm sorry, discredited was the word. Yeah, he used the word discredited, and I, he, she and I disagree a bit. And our disagreement, interestingly, maps onto the literature. So when I say Moynihan was right, and I'm inclined to say he was right, um, what do you write about? Okay, June, I'm going to stop you just because I think we may need just a bit of background. Naomi, could you summarize really quickly what Moynihan wrote in this famous report? Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the, the man who, who subsequently became Senator Moynihan, um, wrote a report on the state of the Negro family, and that, that was the title of it. And what he wrote was the, the part of it, I, I think that June and I both think that, that he was wrong in, well, let June speak for herself, he was wrong in blaming the matriarchal nature of the black family for all of the ills that were visited on black families. But what he identified, he was he was trying to get at what, what is going on with the black family in American culture. Why are why are blacks why why are black families um, why are they poorer than white families and why is their family structure different? And at that point, the black non-marital birth rate was about 25 percent um, than the white non-marital rate. And so he was trying to get at what the sources of that problem were. And he did some incredibly valuable work because he talked about the need for jobs. That part got lost because what he also talked about was the matriarchal nature of the black family. And he talked about that detrimental impact on the black family and on black men. Well, and also, if I remember correctly, what he did was created a context for which people could say, and the subsidies that were in place, such as AFDC, were making it harder to keep those family structures in place, that there were disincentives to marriage, and that that was part of the way the welfare system was working. Okay, here's the irony. Uh, the big expansion in the AFDC program began in 1965, the year of the Moynihan Report. It came after. And when Moynihan himself later commented on those arguments, he said, but wait a minute, the decline in the black family preceded the expansion of welfare benefits, and it continued to pace after Congress cut back on them. So there is this brief period of roughly 65 to 72 after the Moynihan report welfare uh, plays some role, not afterwards, and you wouldn't know that. Uh, if you hear, you know, people talk about welfare 
part of the trouble is it was used, the Moynihan Report was used to reinforce stereotypes in the part of people who would, pref would prefer to blame cultural forces rather than economic forces. Is that right. fair, June? Yeah, that, that is fair. Because one of, one, of the, one of the breakthroughs in the report that got lost was his attempt, I mean, to provide um, cultural and structural issues, putting them together. And he tried to, he actually was, was looking at how changes in the economy affected the family. And so in some ways, in, in some limited ways at least, we're kind of updating that insight that he had into how economics, how changes in the economy affect the family. And of course, he's not the first one to have made that point either, but, but he, his report crystallized that at a time when at least black families were having a very different family structure from white families. Right, much higher rates of female-headed households, among other things. And what happens, too, is then people like, as you, say, as you say in the book, Charles Murray come along and say, no, what this really is, is um, it's very hard to talk about it without sounding racist, but what it really is is culture. And it really doesn't have anything to do with economics at all, and attempts to change the economics are going to fail. And that's pretty much discredited, too, by the recent history that you guys write about. Well, I, I think you can't really look at this without saying economics by itself, just like welfare, for marginal change in welfare benefits, ha has almost no effect on culture. But when you have a large-scale shift in something like the disappearance of jobs, it doesn't just affect the margin. It doesn't affect the person who gets left out because there's one less person you can marry. It affects the expectations of the whole group. And what we've been trying to address in this book is how do economic changes affect expectations about who's available to marry, to have a child with, about your own future. And those expectations then have a set of reinforcing effects that we tend to look at as a whole and call culture. But there's a set of connections, and those connections we wanted to explore. Now, you do that by choosing a, a pair of couples, but one of them is named Lily and Carl, and the other is named Amy and Tyler. Now, I, just, I should have asked you before we get on the air, but I'll ask you now, are these real people or are these composites? Composites. That's what I thought. Okay, and Amy and Tyler are in the top couple quintiles, and Lily and Carl are in the bottom couple quintiles. So what, what's Lily, what's Lily, I guess we'll look at this from the women's point of view to start with. How does Lily look at her future? Okay, and, and let, me, let me emphasize, the core of the story about Lily is a real person. And then we added some other facts that are other real people. So, um, you know, when you ask the question, I'm, I'm going to give you the, the person about whom about two-thirds of the Lily description is based. And this is somebody I know. She's working two jobs. She, um, you know, doesn't expect to return to school. She is trying to get through. Her parents both, both ended up with different forms of cancer. Thankfully, they're doing well right now. Um, and so she's struggling. She ends up pregnant. The guy she's with is somebody who, before even the child is born, she doesn't think reliable dependable, somebody she wants involved as a partner in her life or in the child's life, 
because she feels she can't, and that feeling she can't count on him, she can't count on him to be faithful, she can't count on him to contribute regularly, she can't count on him not to sabotage her actions, makes her unwilling to pair with him. Now, we could give you a couple different versions of that, but we know a lot of women in that position, some married, others clearly never married. But they ended up in the same place they were doing everything. I think that's a really important point that, that, that you, that's core to the, what you're talking about, and that is that how can I rear this child? She looks to the, the biological father of the trial and doesn't see that that can happen really well and also doesn't feel like she can satisfactorily pair bond with him. And that could initially sound like culture too, couldn't it? But it is culture. And what, what we're trying to see suggest in the book is the way this becomes culture, that when we hear the stories, it's stories of women, there was a guy, they think, oh, this one's different. He's the one. He's for me. And then he breaks up. Or you think, this one's different. He's the one. And you find out he's cheating on you. Or this one's different until he gets laid off. And then he's drinking a lot and becoming violent. And you don't need very many. If you have a, an experience, say two experiences like that, and you're talking to your friends, and they all, and your friends who are a little bit older, or your mother, or the people around you have given up on the guys, you don't. You become jaded, and it's that process of being jaded. Now I tell you, every woman I know, every man I know, has a bad experience. Um, what's different is whether they look around them and say, oh, this is working. If I hold out, I can meet, you know, the good guy, the person who's like my dad. Or they look around them, they don't see anyone where it's working out, and they say there's no point in waiting. It happens, it's like lightning striking. That's but Amy's experience is different, and she waits longer before making a commitment. Now, why would, it be diff why would that be different? Why wouldn't she suffer the same... Um, you know, failures of relationship two, three, four times of guys cheating on her, because doesn't that happen to her too? What's different is what she sees around her. And, and no, we argue in the book, I spend a lot of time looking at who's where. So um, when you look at what's happened to men, there are a lot more high-income men now than there are high-income women. More than 15 years ago. Look at 15 years ago, and you look at Today, with just college graduates, the gender gap, the difference between men and women's income has increased. There are more high-income men now than there were compared to the same comparable group of women than 15 years ago. That means if you're in the top group, there are a bunch of men out there who, who, want, who don't just want to date high-income women. When they find the right woman, in an era when they know there are a lot of women, but the right partner who is the kind of person who makes their career go better, makes them feel good about themselves, makes them feel like, wow, this person's special. Uh, there aren't that many of those women. And when the high-income high men find the right women, they marry. And so if I look at my kids, um, you know, who are now between the ages of 25 uh, and the early 30s, their friends are all getting married. Some of the relationships work, some of them don't. But when you look around, you 
see a fair number who have found people who uh, this is a special relationship and the marriage cements their sense, yeah, I'm making it. Um, I'm getting ahead in life. This is where I want to go. This person will help me get there. Now, Naomi, I mean, but this math, you, you, let's just give a little more background about Amy and Tyler, though. Amy and Tyler are lawyers, right? They're both lawyers. They both have gone to law school. And I think, I mean, just to amplify on what June was saying about culture, when Amy looks around her, what she sees, as June said, she sees other men and women who are also graduating from college and who are getting advanced degrees. And so she has very different set of opportunities than does Lily. So that's, I mean, yes, that's culture, but that's also economics. If you go into the economics of who goes to college, there's a strong correlation between that and the the environment in which Amy grew up. The other difference is it's not just people, it's not just opportunities for education and jobs. It's also, as June said, when each woman looks around her and looks at whether or not the marriages of people they know have worked out, um, uh, more than half of people with the least education don't think that marriage has worked out for most people that they know. So it's over 50% of the least educated third of the population that agrees that marriage has not worked out. By contrast, in the highly educated group where both Amy and Tyler are, it's under 20%. So about three times as many people in the least educated group think that marriage has not worked out. So again, it, it, it's the culture. And then if we go into the reasons as to why marriage hasn't worked out or people aren't getting married, that then gets us right back down, right back to the economic issue. And Naomi, there's a quotation that really struck me. There's two of them, actually. There's a short one. And you say that the book's focus is on the questions not of why Lily and Carl no longer marry. You think the far more interesting question is why Amy and Tyler still do. And that really catches on several of the themes that's going on. But the, the data you talk about, the data that illustrates the point you just made is in this quotation. What this chart shows is that the divorce rate did not plateau in the 90s. You saw news reports, I'm now off the quote, that said, hey, look, divorce rates are, are falling. But that wasn't true that divorce rates are falling all across the income classes. What was happening, and here I quote again, it was simultaneously declining steadily and rising precipitously just for different groups. Thus, the averages were misleading. Divorce rates were not plateauing for anyone. Instead, the averages cloaked two different trends. All right. Uh, it's fascinating for several reasons. For, and, and you see the same thing happening with marital quality in the same period, up for the top group, declining for the bottom group. And there's several things that are happening. So for the top group, the big thing that's happening is, the, you know, if you look back in the 90s, the top group of men are doing really well. And then you look at what's happening within the relationships, and there are two patterns. About two-thirds of the top group are dual-career couples. The women have careers. The couples spend no time together, but conflict is way, way down, and they have enough money to hire somebody else to do the housework. 
that, that group is doing great. Then about a third of the top group is relatively traditional and a little bit older. They're doing fine. Secondly, you have a later age of marriage. So one of the things you used to see is people who got married, you know, in their early 20s, and by their late 20s, they figured out they didn't have very much in common. That group marries in their late 20s now. When you look at the bottom group, though, the, the divorce rates continue going up. And uh, Paul Amato is a sociologist. He has a wonderful study. He compares couples in 1980 and 2000. And he found what's happening to that, to the group that's really unhappy, is that if the women are working full time because their, their husbands don't earn enough, but they would prefer to be at home, and they're also doing the majority of the housework, they're really unhappy. So these are couples, uh, they include a lot of couples in their 20s, they include a lot of working class couples. The wife thinks she ought to be home with the kids. The husband also thinks that he ought to be earning more than she is. And if he feels not very successful, and if she feels she's doing two jobs, that group is the most divorce prone in the country. And so what you're seeing is they have more traditional expectations. They expect the guy to be the breadwinner, but the economy has changed. They're not living up to those expectations. They're really unhappy. The so, other thing that, that's going on is this question of why does one group, June's gotten into why, why one group is more likely to marry and to stay married. But what we were struck by was if you go back to 1950, the most highly educated women were much less likely to get married than women at other educational levels. That's, there's been a huge crossover, a huge flip in that. That, that's actually really huge in popular culture at the time, too. If you think of movies like um, Desk Set with Katherine Hepburn playing the spinster librarian, the <laughs> idea that people who were successful in business couldn't possibly be part of the marriage market. And that's, and that's changed. And the, the question is, why has that changed? And why are the people who were more likely to get married today less likely to get married and less likely to stay married? Why is it that Amy and Tyler do get married? What is it? that's beneficial for them to marry. We can, so we can see why Lily doesn't want to marry Carl, because Carl's not adding enough to her future. And in fact, if he's going to be unemployed and possibly violent, it's actually a negative influence on the child-rearing part of it. Lily doesn't seem any benefit to it. But when you say the far more interesting question is, Tyler and Amy marrying brings to mind, you know, the Scandinavian countries where marriage rates in the top quintiles seem to be falling really quickly. Why is this different in America? And I have a number of conversations with my European colleagues uh, about exactly this issue. And I think there's several things. First of all, in Europe, non-marital cohabitations are more stable than American marriages. So the couple may not get married, they may feel it's a mere formality, but they live together for 20 years, yeah, yeah. even if they have children. And they're more likely to get married in Europe if they do have children, but still they have fairly stable relationships. Relationships in the U.S. aren't so stable. The second thing, and therefore marriage is important in, in, in distinguishing the committed relationships from uncommitted ones. But the second thing, and you know, watching my children when they were living in D.C., it was very much like this. And watching some of our law students, it's like this. 
we have a very mobile society. Uh, when I was visiting at uh, George Washington with Naomi, we have students for, who come from all over the country. They live in D.C. for a few years. They often find someone and marry the person they meet. They don't necessarily want to stay there. I mean, our children grew up in California, have lived in Washington a while, have lived in Kansas City. One is now back in California. The other wants to move to Colorado. I'm in Minnesota. Marriage <laughs> helps cement relationships that are mobile. The other thing it does that's different from Europe, I was, I was talking to someone who married a woman from France. So he's an American, married someone from France. He was describing going to visit her. And she, and she lives in this house she inherited from her grandmother that the family has lived in for 300 years. They know their neighbors. They don't actually interact all that much with the neighbors, but they know who they are. They know the families. Their, their parents knew the same families. Their grandparents knew the same families. They know who they are. <laughs> I would say watching our children, watching their friends, watching the destination marriages, the marriage is an announcement, I am keeping this part of my culture. I am bonding not just with my spouse, but with this aspect of his tradition. There are other parts of it we're jettisoning. Oh, these relatives we're including in our group, more distant people we've lost touch with we will never see again. The marriage redefines community in a very mobile culture. There are a couple of, of differences. Um, uh, Andrew Trillin, a sociologist at, at Johns Hopkins, has this wonderful line on uh, American, even though Americans marry more than, than Westerners in, in other countries, we are more likely to have more partners, more intimate partners than our people in, in other countries. Um, he said, I was stunned to read that children living with two married parents in the United States have a higher risk of experiencing a family breakup than do children living with two unmarried parents in Sweden. So marriage here is a cultural ideal, um, but our relationships are not as stable as those in other countries with lower marriage rates. Now, another phrase that struck me, and it, it resonates with the, uh, the previous book as well, is the development of conservative value, family values among the elites. I mean, when you described in the, old, in the, in the other book um, the Massachusetts kids who would be appalled at the idea of both smoking and getting pregnant before the age of 20. Um, you, you're, you go on at greater length about how conservative values are, are rising among the elites in the current marriage markets. Can you talk about that a little bit? What June and I have found is that there's still an incredibly strong belief in marriage in the United States, regardless of, regardless of class, regardless of levels of education. People still want to get married. Most people, regardless of income or education level, still think that marriage is very important or one of the most important things to them. So marriage remains incredibly important, regardless of, of whether people are liberal, conservative, regardless of, of... But in terms of conservative... Well, June, I'll let you go on from there. Yes, and I, Naomi and I tend to disagree a little bit, not on the bottom line, but on how we describe this. So I think what Naomi just said is right. But there is a huge difference as to whether people think marriage is within reach. 
and whether you live your life to put yourself in a position to get there. But I want to describe Tyler for a moment. Tyler, we based Tyler on several different people who told us some version of, of this story. They're young, they're insecure guys. Uh, they meet a woman, they really like her, they think she might be the one. They live together for a bit and they come to some conclusion that they want to go farther that they want to go to grad school, that they want uh, a partner who's going to challenge them. They want a partner who has the same kind of experiences that they do. And I can tell you that most of the guys with whom I've had this kind and of... And similar income expectations. Yes. So they want a woman who's, whose income is enough that they don't feel they're supporting her. They feel she's contributing to their being better off. And, and right now, everybody I know, including people who we might call wealthy, feel really insecure. So people who feel really insecure are thinking, I can do better. Boy, and when they find that person, when they think, boy, this person is a catch. She's so much different from my last girlfriend. You know, she's more ambitious. She doesn't expect me to do things for her. She does things for me. She pushes me harder. She makes as much money as I do. I mean, a variety of things like that. And I, I don't want to sound so crass because uh, the men who have told us these stories are in love with the women they're marrying. But when they find that woman who looks really different from their last girlfriend, they want to get married. It's not just they want to be with her. They want that too. But they want to get married. They think she's special. Now, I got a question from the audience that dovetails very nicely with that, with that note. Um, this is from Stephen Zutfly. The conversation so far seems to imply that most decisions for women to marry or whom to marry are consciously made. Yet there's a pretty good body of work that suggests underlying biological imperatives influence or drive these decisions too. Could the authors address the interplay of these forces in different economic climates and in different economic classes, especially in terms of marriages that tend to involve children? And I'd like that covered in one minute. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, let, let me add, we did do a paper on the hormones at one point. <laughs> We did, and in fact, we, I was going to say we got into this because we started writing about sociobiology and sociobiological, how sociobiology affected partnerships and pairing. So this takes us, this takes us back. I, I have to tell you, I keep thinking about concealed ovulation, too, the whole time <laughs> reading this book. Um, so but could you talk about the fact that, of course... <laughs> yes, there's a lot of women lying about paternity in our book. <laughs> well, can you address the interplay of the forces of hormones and love as well as different economic climates and different economic classes? Which I think you do do that. I mean, when you talk about, um, you know, Lily's decision that she, while she loves Carl, she can't trust him. She's torn in your description of her. Yes, and you know, in some ways, I feel I understand Tyler better. So, um, and so, let me let me address that, and then let's go back to Lily. Um, on the men, you know, in in these stories that we're telling in the book, uh, with all three of the men, at one point they thought they were in love with their prior girlfriend. They lived with her, or they had an ongoing relationship. They were excited about it. If she had gotten pregnant in the old days, or if they had to make a decision about marriage, they would have gotten married, but they didn't. This is a different era. And so by the time they got to the point where they were ready to settle down, their expectations about who they wanted to settle with had changed. Now, if we can give you the hormonal count on that, <laughs> you know, the, the part in the beginning where you're all excited, that's the dopamine system. 
on, it wears off. And so if the relationship is going to last, you want it to become something more than that. People used to get married before it wore off. Now they tend to live together past that stage. So the marriage is coming later. What's going on with Lily is, I think, a little different. Naomi, do you want to take a crack at that? Can I quote you guys? Boy meets girl. They have the hots for each other and jump in the sack. If she's disciplined and ambitious, she's been on the pill since puberty. If not, she gets pregnant. She decides she can deal with the baby. He thinks she can too. They both adore the child, but not necessarily each other. They stay together only so long as the sex stays hot, their tempers stay cool, and a better opportunity does not present itself. Then they part and society goes to hell. That's pretty good. I like that. <laughs> well, you guys wrote it. But, that's, but that, that's kind of the Lily explanation is Lily falls in love, and then she gets pregnant and decides that Carl's not the person she wants to rear the child with. Now, that's hormonally driven, but what's different, I think, if I read you correctly, is my parents in the 50s um, had the idea that the father would be the, the breadwinner and he was going to be the high-income earner, and now that's not the case, that income, income possibilities for Lily have enhanced dramatically, and Lily's more likely to be educated than she was 30 years ago. And and Carl is more likely to not have opportunities and more likely not to be as educated. Yeah, that is changing. Though the attitudes towards expectations that men will be breadwinners are not changing nearly as dramatically as are the economics that uh, you're describing. I got one more question because somebody is still confused, I think, even rolling back to the Moynihan discussion. Are, are you saying that economics does not affect culture of those in poverty, those not in poverty? Right. We're saying economics affects the culture of both. And it does so by changing their expectations of, of uh, what they're going to get from the opposite sex. That's what, what uh, economics is doing, is it changes those expectations, and then it builds in. It has reinforcing effects. Well, let me give you an example. At the top end, women have some choices. The men know you don't graduate from college, you don't have a good job, you aren't you know, pretty attentive and faithful person you want to marry, she's going to dump you. Uh, and that means the men who think marriage is important invest in those things. Um, when you look at the bottom, the women don't feel they have a whole lot of choice. And I will say, you know, when we, the, the, the three people who make up Tyler all told us about the same story. The various people who make up Lily did not tell us the same story. In some cases, they thought the guy was hot, but they were never in love with him. They thought he was charming and sexy and they had, a, they had fun that night. In other cases, uh, they were in love with him. They thought he was committed to them and then they found out he was cheating and they felt betrayed. Those are really different stories, uh, very different stories. So uh, the, what they all add up to are expect, reinforcing expectations the guys who think they're never going to get a great job but find their women who will sleep with them don't invest a lot in shaping up. I mean, it, it's very hard to tell just how many women are lying about the paternity of their children. And, I mean, random, it, it's very hard to do random samples. And so you do tend to hear about the, I don't know, sensationalized cases where that happens. But um, uh, reliable studies, no such thing as a reliable study necessarily because you would have to test every single child or, you know, a huge population of, of children. But, and, you, I mean, and, you, and you wouldn't want to. You really don't want to do that. Course, right? 
But you do tend to hear about this at divorce when there's a paternity test and it turns out that the husband is, in fact, not the father of the child. And so that then gets sort of blown out of proportion. So uh, among couples who are married, although we know of these stories, they're, 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 the incidence isn't so high, that what Naomi is referring to. What is happening in a way that is well-documented are women who are raising children with multiple partners. Now, they may have had the, uh, you know, one child with one guy and another child with the other guy, or maybe they have two children uh, with the guy they were with to begin with, and then later they're living with other men. That question of who is the dad, uh, where the mom uh, has partnered with different people over time, really complex. Which brings me to what I wanted to make sure we got to, and that is what you think we should do socially as a matter of public policy to help improve the opportunities for young people, especially people who are growing up in difficult situations. Now, the way you put it is you want to do reform from the bottom up. More jobs that are better jobs that, uh, you know, offer regular raises, pay enough to support a family, uh, child-friendly policy so that uh, men and women can um, opt in and out of the labor force as family needs uh, demand. I mean, if, if all you did was decrease inequality and increase the number of jobs, a lot of the problems of the family would go away overnight. That is, yeah. if, if wage rates were higher for the bottom two quintiles. Yes. And jobs are available. And more stable. It's, it's stability of employment and not just wages. So in the old days, if you think of the union job and, you know, my uh, husband's stepfather just passed away, you know, UAW started at 18, retired at 48. And one of the things about that, it gave him an identity. It gave him regular raises. It gave him a community he felt part of and he felt that he was taken care of, but he also felt he worked hard and it got him someplace. Now, even if you get the same kind of job, it may not last. When you're laid off, you don't have a clue how to get another job. Typically, you're going to get a job that paid less well than the last one. You don't feel good about yourself. And especially if you see the women in your lives doing okay without you, you don't feel good about yourself. I was going to add that, so, that we talked about... Oh, I'm sorry, Jean. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I stopped. <laughs> okay, no, I was going to say... I mean, it's not just rebuilding from the bottom up. It's also rebuilding from the top down and doing something about the perpetuation of inequality at the top that then has um, more than trickle-down effects to, to fostering inequality at all levels of society. So we talk about responding to families' needs, regardless of income level, but we also talk about the need to change from the top down the structure of economic inequality in our society. And so, Jay, you said something about um, some of the social solutions. It's actually, we get back to, we're back to the economy and we're back to economic solutions. And if we could fix the economy, then we're going to have profound effects on the social structure of society. Well, what you mean by that, I think, seems to be you want to get the post-war era back again. Um, you want to see a flattening of the income distribution, a higher tax rate on capital. I mean, this is a very hot topic right now. I, I thought it was great when I got the book and I saw that inequality was in the subtitle and this was about inequality. But that's a very 
big change to make. And one of our one of our commenters says, "What are you going to? What are you trying to improve? What do we mean by improve something? Well, what do we mean?" Well, I, I and you know, I just taught a whole class on this, and it's uh, an enormously complex subject. But if I were to take just a couple of things about the way this stuff works, one of the things is that we are all looking over our shoulders at what's going to happen next and who's threatening us. If you're not moving up, you're moving backwards. And in the old days, I mean, you know, I, I, one of the slogans I, I, in the last presidential election I like to say was, if only Mitt, Mitt Romney, were more like George, George Romney, his dad. And if you think about what was different, George Romney thought what it meant to be a successful businessman is, uh, you know, to be head of American Motors, the health of American Motors, of its employees, of the institution. Uh, that's the mark of success. For Mitt, no one cares. I don't even sure Mitt cares whether Bain Capital is still going to be around 10 years from now. The sign of success is that he has $200 million in the Cayman Islands. That's what's wrong. So if you think about those differences, you know, we, we in the book talk a little okay. bit. Let, 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 me, let, me, let me stop you, because when you said this is wrong, what you mean is that sense that seems to be true of the bottom 90 percentile of earners, of this feeling of looking back, of I could be laid off tomorrow, of I could, I, my, uh, nothing's set for me. I don't have a gold watch I'm seeking anymore. Is that what you mean? Yes, and the connection between the two is George Romney thought he was more successful if his employees had a sense they would get the gold watch. Mitt Romney thinks he's more successful as a businessman if he is firing people, and that means at the end of the day, his bonus is bigger. He, I, there's I, nothing about him that links his well-being to the well-being and the workers of the companies he affects. They're not in the same boat. I just saw a T-shirt that said, he who dies with the most toys wins. And so it's all about, it's about sort of asset accumulation for yourself as opposed to, as opposed to, I mean, it's it's not that we've not always had very wealthy people. It's a question of do they care about the people who are working for them? And again, you can't look back at American history and say, oh, yes, um, uh, the the employers have always cared about those who are working for them, um, uh, but but there's been but there's been a huge change uh, uh, towards back towards worker exploitation. I think is what June what you're what you're suggesting. Well, I had an off I had a conversation with David K. Johnson about this a while ago, and he asked me this, and I said, well, it seems to me that it might be that we're just looking at an aberrational period. Um, written the post-World War II period through maybe 1973, and that we're reverting back to um, the income inequality that's characterized the country for most of its history, and instability of financial as well. I mean, we went through a 19th century of crisis after crisis, fiscal crisis after fiscal crisis. But when you say it's wrong, when you say that this is, you're saying that people, that the public policy we're engaging in is not making most of the citizens feel confident or happy. Is that what you're saying? 
because this is a public policy decision. It's a it's public policy decision to subsidize capital gains relative to wage income. It's a public policy decision to keep the wage rate low. The minimum wage is substantially lower in real terms than it was 30 years ago. It's a public policy decision to not invest in infrastructure, to not, for example, have have banks and post offices. The number of public policy decisions we make that enforce the current income distribution. And why should, can you, are you making a case for changing that public policy position? Yes, and again, I think that's fairly complex. Uh, complex in this sense. Um, the, um, you know, uh, one of the things that I think it's hard to say is that it wouldn't happen anyway. That is, the internet, the tech revolution is disruptive. And it's disruptive in part in that it tears down the restraints on competition. You know, I, I tell the story to my class when I started off as a lawyer. Uh, my husband and I used to go to Cleveland for the annual, uh, he worked for a law firm in DC, and that law firm uh, was a Washington office of the Cleveland firm. And there were three big firms in Cleveland in those days, and all the partners belonged to the same exclusive and almost certainly discriminatory country club. But if you wanted to do business in Cleveland, you had to hire one of those three firms. And those three firms could say no to clients. They could say, no, I won't do something unethical. They also gave their clients cut-rate services and used those cut-rate services to train their young associates. So you had an old boys club, but you also had an old boys club with restraints on competition. Now, you know, one of those companies that's doing business in Cleveland hires its lawyers from all over the world. They say no in some firm in Cleveland, they just get the Washington office to do it, or the office in London. So right. that you, some of what's going on is breaking those constraints on competition. But the other side of that is rigging the system. And so I think if you look at the question, do we have a full employment economy? or an economy that keeps inflation low? The answer is we have a low inflation economy, and that doesn't benefit the workers. Well, it also may not lead to better economic growth either. It may lead to slower growth. Um, you also talk about the importance of public policies that influence um, child-rearing, that essentially make it possible for kids to grow up um, in a better environment regardless of what economic status they're born into. Um, can you talk about what benefits you see for society as a whole from that? Why that's a good investment, I guess, is really the question. Naomi, you want to take that? Um, well, I mean, to, to, to the extent we want our children to have lives that are as good as ours, if not better, then we as a society, I mean, we, we, can, we can even get back into sociobiology here, if, if we would like, um, and talk about how important it is is to to help our children. So we have a series of, I mean, at, at this point in, in the book, June and I um, endorse many of the same policy prescriptions that most liberals, most other liberals do with respect to how to, how to improve the chances of the next generation. So it's everything from better support for pregnant women and new moms to better support for preschool 
or earlier education, um, uh, keep Head Start going strong, for example, then continuing up and providing perhaps changing the length of the school day so that um, parents don't feel a constant pull between needing to rush home to take care of children after school or else have latchkey kids. I mean, we're, we're much farther along in Switzerland where uh, public schools dismiss the kids for lunch and they're expected to go home, have lunch with their mothers, and then go back to school. We're much farther along than that. But, but the school not nearly as far along as Norway, where there is yeah. essentially required paternal, paternity leave. Right, 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 right. So um, that's so. What you're advocating is then, especially preschool, um, foundational work to be done, and that that's something society really needs to. That's a good investment. I use the word investment advisedly. I guess that you quote one person as saying that the returns to investment on on under five education and prenatal right. care is is huge. And then it, it also yeah, goes we would say, you know, it's well go ahead. Go ahead, please. We we say it's you know, if you go back to the nineteenth century and the Industrial Revolution, what was the big innovation? Pre secondary education. What what today would have a similar impact? Uh free preschool. Free universal preschool. I think that's probably true, and also I think when you talk about prenatal care and immediate postnatal care, well-child visits and prenatal visits seem to be extremely important as well, just in terms of creating opportunity and making sure that, and it seems silly, again, it seems like obviously bad public policy to neglect any children um, at this point, especially when we're looking at a, growth, a population growth rate that's been flattening. It just seems insane not to do that. but. That brings us back, I guess, to what I want to close with, and that is that there's still enormous resistance to that from people who aren't liberal, who believe that you should. I, I, see, I can't. I, can you characterize the argument that Charles Murray might make against universal pre-K? Well, you have to start. I mean, you know, when you were describing the post World War II era, I was just going to say it's not just unusual in being egalitarian. It is unusual in that the most extreme ideological left and the most extreme ideological right, namely the South, we're in the same party. And so, you know, when you put when you put the uh, ideologues uh, on right and left of the same party, and and then you divide up, uh, you know, like Catholics or Democrats versus Protestants or at least mainstream Protestants who are Republicans, that's not an ideological split; it's an identity split. And so what you had was a pragmatic system. Right now, what you've got is a system that never gets to the pragmatics because it's too busy being ideologically pure. And today, I mean, in, in my youth, I would say that characterized the left, but today it characterizes the right. So Murray basically says, I'm a libertarian. I don't believe government works. I won't want the government to do the least harm. If they're going to do anything about the poor, maybe there should be, you know, give everybody $5,000 and let them spend it. But God forbid, <laughs> and he doesn't believe in God, um, that uh, the government should go out and do things like set up a preschool system, give them vouchers. We don't believe government can do anything that works. Well, it would make things worse. That's what he would say. That's right. Or have mothers stay home to take care of them, right? Because, after all, until the children are off into uh, uh, beyond the tender years, um, there should be a breadwinner who is able to support the women and children. 
and if not to see Murray doesn't believe that. No, no, Murray doesn't believe that. I was just I was trying to to describe sort of some people who might believe it. Murray has has said, and again, it's the same thing that the neoliberals said of the Irish at the height of the potato famine. If you make things bad enough, then they will find discipline. And he does say that. You know, if you if you create a world where women who have kids they can't afford to provide on their own, you know, and and he doesn't quite say see them die. He says, realize the only way the kids are going to survive are to put them in orphanages. And they then see the children being taken away and put in orphanages. They will stop having the kids. And he says, if the men see the women they got pregnant in those straits, the men will shape up and work two or three minimum wage jobs if necessary to support the women so their kids won't be placed in orphanages. As they should and, have. You know, and, and if they were morally correct, they wouldn't need this impetus, but this impetus is, is sadly what we need to use. Right. So if you cushion the consequences of their bad decisions, they will simply continue to make those bad decisions. That is what he argued. Okay, that makes sense. And the trouble is, is that in the story you tell about Carl, Carl doesn't have opportunities. And the story that you tell of people looking over their shoulders all the time, shift workers being told they have to be available 60 hours a week in order to work 30, doesn't leave that possibility open, really. And, you know, when we see guys, and we do, um, including some of our law students right now, who think they have a job, and then they don't get the permanent offer, and then they go to work for a fraction of what it's taking to pay their student loans to, uh, you know, with some job, we're taking that job, which at least pays the rent, looks bad on their resume, as opposed to their colleagues whose parents are supporting them, who takes the unpaid internship that looks good on the resume. They give up. Right, and, and when that's a couple, <laughs> when it's a, a couple in the middle of their class, they both find themselves in jeopardy because they can't cover the loans. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, is there anything, June, you'd like to add? Because we should wrap up. We're supposed to hold this to an hour. Well, thank you. I mean, very stimulating. And, you know, it's so hard, and we really appreciate your pulling together how interconnected the pieces are, including, you know, with, with the politics of our time. And it's so hard from a family law perspective to get beyond the sound bites. We appreciate the opportunity to do that. Well, it's so much fun having you both by. And thank you, Naomi, for joining us this time. We really appreciate it. So, folks, the book is Marriage Markets, How Inequality is Remaking the American Family. And um, you should get the book. It, it's really interesting read. And, you know, a lot of stuff we're talking about, it sounds like we may have been talking uh, without data to support it. But actually, there's an enormous amount of information and data in the, in the book. And it's not – it's really well documented and really well worked out. Thanks so much, June. Thank you, Naomi. Folks, we'll see you next time. <laughs>